you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles this week to Daniel chapter 6. We are breaking pattern a little this week, so I will just briefly talk about why uh, as you guys are turning there. Daniel chapter 6. Typically, if you've joined us in weeks past, we have been in the Gospel of Luke. We will continue that pattern, um, but for reasons that will become clear uh, once we are done reading and uh, studying this text together, We have decided this week to take uh, a pause from Luke uh, once again just to highlight an issue that we feel is important uh, to stand united uh, as a church on and something that is particularly uh, prevalent uh, today and in recent uh, history. So if you are in Daniel chapter 6, if you are there in your Bibles, if you would please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Daniel chapter 6, and I will be reading in verse 1 through uh, to the end of verse 14, or verse 13. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give their account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was given to him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of oh, sorry, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, He went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Then the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we are in Daniel chapter 6 today, I hinted earlier that this is a break from our normal pattern in Luke. And uh, next week, I promise we will be back in Luke. We have spent quite some time there, and I realize we are slowing our pace a bit, but I promise we will get back on track next week. Daniel chapter 6, the reason we have chosen this text today is because of some events that happened recently up north. It is not our habit to break our pattern of expository teaching, except when there's a particular moment in the culture that might require it. And it is not our habit to do that very often or for a great number of events. And many of you who've been with us for some time know that. So I just want to encourage you, if uh, you're kind of wary of where we're going today, uh, just take some heart. Uh, You can Uh, disagree with us on some of these issues, uh, we have no problem 
And if you ask anyone who's been here for several weeks, if you come here regularly and you see people who are here regularly, just ask them. And they'll be happy to talk to you about these issues as well as we dive into this text together. But uh, Daniel chapter 6 brings to light some key issues that I think are important. And as uh, great translators have said, Scripture really has only ever one correct interpretation, but it has almost an infinite number of applications. And so we are going to look today at Daniel chapter 6 for that one correct interpretation. And then we're going to ask the question, what are those applications for our culture today? So Daniel chapter 6, and I'm not going to start reading the whole thing again. I just want to pick up in verse 4 and start reading there. And if you'll follow along with me in your Bibles as well. Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now, as it was introduced earlier in this text, Daniel is a servant of the king. He is also a servant of the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And while the Jewish people are in exile, they have been told at several points to seek the benefit of the kingdom that they are a part of, to serve those kings faithfully, and to be good citizens and good stewards of the resources that they have been given. In Daniel's case, he's been given the privilege of serving on the high council, if you will, of the king. He serves in a distinguished role with only a handful of other people who oversee all of the activities of the empire. This is the great Babylonian empire that he is ruling over. And he rules uniquely as a Jew. He is not like his other counterparts in this regard. The other satraps and the other high officials, they are local native Babylonians. But Daniel is not. He is a Jew who was uh, taken from his homeland and raised under the Babylonian empire. And yet through God's providence, much like Joseph who came before him, he rises to prominence and rises to power because the hand of the Lord is with him. And his co-workers don't seem to like that very much. And they've decided that what they need to prevent Daniel from ascending any further, from gaining any more influence, and from potentially ruling at the very right hand of the king himself because of the kind of influence he might have in that position, they've decided they need to garner some charge against Daniel by which he is to be disqualified from his rule. And when they look at his life, as verse 4 tells us, they find nothing that is worthy of accusation. They find nothing that is worthy of questioning. It says that against Daniel, with regards to the kingdom, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Now keep in mind, Daniel is essentially a politician. He's essentially a ruler. And for someone to say about a politician that there was no grounds for complaint is quite a significant thing. Even in our day, with a very westernized world and not really too many taking of bribes and anything like that, politicians typically have a lot to hide. But Daniel had nothing. 120 people in the kingdom who have authority and influence, as well as other high officials, are digging up dirt on Daniel and they can't find anything. He's a foreigner in the Babylonian land. They can't find anything to say against him. They have nothing against him. Now, what kind of things could they have against him? They could garner against him his unfaithfulness to the king. They find no thing there that guarantees his unfaithfulness. They could garner up against him that he's not actually as good of an Israelite as he proclaims to be. He's a fraud. They find nothing against him that would indicate that. Many Christian leaders today lose their influence and they lose their ability to speak into the lives of the culture because they disqualify themselves from that seat of influence. No such charge could be brought against Daniel. He not only was loyal to God, he not only was faithful to the Babylonian king whom he served, he also did so with complete integrity. Complete integrity. So these people who have a fault to find against Daniel have decided that if they can't find anything, they'll make something. They will create something to which Daniel will surely 
be guilty of. So they don't send a woman for him to be seduced by. That might have caused King David to become guilty. They don't bribe him as Judas was bribed. They can find no such fault in him. What must they do to cause Daniel to be guilty? Well, verse 5 tells us, look with me at the text when it says, These men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. We know if we want Daniel to be guilty, we need the law of the land to go against the law of his God. And we know that as good of a servant of Babylon as Daniel is, as faithful of a servant as he is to the king, he cannot go against the law of his God. He, after all, is a faithful Jew. That's why we could find no thing against him. That's why we had nothing else to bring against him. But if we make his law illegal in the land, we know that between the law of God and the law of the Babylonian empire, surely Daniel will violate the law of the king to serve his God. And so what they do is they create such a law. Now that law comes about in verses 6 through 8, and you will see that with me in the text First and foremost, they go before King Darius and they very superficially raise up his name. They say, oh, King Darius, live forever. These are good politicians. And all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, they're all there. All the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce that ordinance that he establishes. And the ordinance that they want him to establish is this, that whoever makes a petition to any god, notice the lowercase g in your translation, or any man, for the next 30 days, if they petition anyone else besides you, they should be cast into the den of lions. Now, why would they say that? You'll notice they're totally fine with people being worshipers of other gods. The Babylonians, as they go through the land uh, to which they conquered, they garnered a great many number of civilizations inside of their kingdom. And so in order to keep peace, much like the Romans who came after them, what they would do is they would allow the local worship of whatever deity those people would want to serve, but they commanded a trump card, a higher authority that must be served, which was the Babylonian king. The Babylonian king was seen as the god king, the one who stood over in authority over all of the people to which he was ruler. And so while they allow for the worship of a God or the loyalty to any man, they say to show off your kingship, Darius, what you should do is you should make it illegal for the next 30 days to petition anyone who's not you. So that Darius would be the sole mediator between anyone else and God. Anyone else and the God whom they serve. Anyone else and any other authority. Darius is the one who's going to rule and to reign. They've made it illegal to go directly to God. Which is what a Jewish person is told to do. In exile, the Jewish people are told to petition their God directly. To ask for his uh, relenting of his punishment. To ask for his forgiveness for the sins of which they are guilty to call him to be faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham and to Moses and to all the people. The Jewish people have to go directly to God. No king, no matter how powerful, can stand between God and his chosen people. And Daniel knows this. And these people who are creating this law at least know the Jewish religion well enough, possibly through their interaction with Daniel, to know that if they can get him on this, they know he's going to violate it. Daniel cannot go even 30 days without prayer. He cannot go even 30 days without petitioning his God. And so they create the law, and they get King Darius to sign the law, and they enforce that law by their then close and careful watch of Daniel in the following verses. Now, before I move further in exegeting this text, and unpacking what that might have to do for us. I want to introduce a bit of what that has to do with us on the ground today, why have we broken the pattern from Luke 
to get to Daniel chapter 6. Well, some of you might know, if you are in tune with uh, the local affairs and potentially the legal affairs of the church, that there is a law that was recently passed as of December 30th in Canada. And that law, called Bill C-4, has made it illegal for any person to present a gospel witness to anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction or has confused gender identity. They have made it illegal, punishable by prison, for any person to be in violation of this law. Now, I bring that up because what they could have done, potentially, to those faithful Christian churches in Canada is they could have found dirt on all of the pastors. And if you know about the ministry and you even pay attention to the pastoral situation in the West, you know that there are a great many reasons why men of God can become disqualified from their ministry. But for those churches that are faithful and for those ministers that are faithful, they could find no such grounds for disputing their witness. And so what they did instead was to create a law that they knew that Christians would have to stand in violation of. And so as of December 30th, uh, a unanimous bill passed in their parliament. And I have a copy of that bill here with me today. It's printed in both English and French, so I decided to cut the French part off because I cannot read French. But I want to read to you uh, some sections of that bill that are pertinent for Christian witness. And then I hope that you will see the significance of this law. This law is against what is called the practice of conversion therapy. But I want you to know that how they define conversion therapy is not how you might be familiar with people defining conversion therapy. Under their definition section, as they're passing the law, they define for you conversion therapy. They define it as such. Conversion therapy is a means by which a practice or a treatment or a service is designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Which means if you talk to someone and present to them the gospel and call them to repentance of their sin, you're in violation of this law. Furthermore, a practice or a treatment or a service designed to change a person's gender identity from cisgender. For those of you who don't know, cisgender means the gender to which you are also biologically in agreement with. To change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to each person at birth. Any practice or conversation or treatment of someone that would allow them to begin to repress or reduce any kind of non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior is defined as also conversion therapy. Meaning if a pastor meets with a member of their church and has conversations about how they ought to combat lust that they might struggle with and it falls into the category of a non-heterosexual attraction, that pastor can go to prison. To repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity or to repress a person's free gender expression into one that does not conform with the sex to which is assigned to them at birth. They go on to clarify that this does not include helping someone into a transition from one gender to another. They want to clarify because they're okay with the conversion of someone from one gender to another so long as that's not to the gender to which they were assigned at birth. This is how they have defined conversion therapy. And the punishment for such violations is as follows. It says, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo this said conversion therapy is guilty of an offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. You can serve up to five years in prison for such a violation. And not only that, not only if you are an active participant in this process, but if you knowingly promote or advertise conversion therapy, you can be subject to up to two years in prison. Which means if you are part of a church in Canada and the pastor in a sermon addresses the issue of same-sex attraction and you share that sermon, 
or recommend it to somebody else, you can go to prison for two years. The vague language in the bill is designed to be inconspicuous, but it is also designed to be able to be weaponized against churches, much in the same way that in Daniel chapter 6, the prefects and the satraps decide to create a law that doesn't say Jews can't worship Yahweh, that's too direct. They say, let's create a law that says no one can go to anyone except Darius for 30 days. And everyone else who worships their local deities, they don't care about Baal enough to pray to him in violation of this law. But they know that Jewish people will be guilty of this law. And so they create a law with which creates it to be now illegal for a Christian to hold fast to a biblical sexual ethic and to even preach the gospel or share the good news of Christ with someone who struggles with same-sex sexual attraction. This is the world in which we live. Now, this is not in the United States yet, but up north, this is what's happening. And in response to this bill, which went into law in January 8th, a whole lot of pastors in Canada and some in the United States who decided to stand in solidarity with them resolved to, on January 16th today, preach about the biblical sexual ethic and what the Bible says about sex. What is God's plan for humanity? And the reason they decided to do that is because they know it's illegal. They know they can go to prison if they do it. And they've decided that because they can, they will. Much like how you will see now in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel responds to the law given to him. Look with me at verse 10. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, when he knew, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber. And those windows were open toward Jerusalem, meaning you can see inside. He doesn't pull the windows down and continue his practice of worship. Notice what he does. He gets down on his knees not once, not twice, but three times every single day, prostrating himself towards Jerusalem and praying to his God, as he had done previously. In the full witness of anyone who might seek to find a charge against him, he gives them, if you like, 90 pieces of evidence to convict him. For 30 days, he prays three times a day in open view of whoever's looking. It's a second-story house. Not every house in Babylon is two stories tall, meaning he's up on a big tower, everyone can see him, into the window, and he's three times a day praying to God. If he's doing this, no doubt he's taking time off of work, breaking his pattern in the middle of a workday to go to his house to pray to his God to return back to work, meaning people would notice his absence. He's a ruler, after all. So if they seek him, they say, oh, where's Daniel? He's praying in his house, as he usually does. Daniel responds to the bill that was passed, to the law, not by doing so in secret, but by saying that rather than doing it in secret, he's going to make it three times as public. He's going to continue his pattern of doing what he, as a Jew, is called to do, which is to pray to God. Nowhere in Scripture... Does it say you must pray three times a day? No Jew is ever told by law that they must do that. Why does Daniel then choose to do it? Because it was his pattern from before. And he's not going to alter his pattern of praying to God just because the Babylonian king and Darius has signed this into law. He's resolved to continue to pray to his God as his God is worthy of prayer. Now that's an interesting kind of thing. Because Daniel, if he knows what is signed into the bill, he would also know what could possibly be assigned to him if he is caught, or should I say, when he is caught. Because if you're familiar with this story in Daniel chapter 6, you know that he is caught, and he is punished. And God does deliver him. Much the same way that people have decided today to preach against what the government has deemed a topic that is off limits to the gospel. 
because no government, no king, no president, no parliament can decide where God's word and his gospel does or does not extend. And so I know for many of you in this church, you're familiar with where we stand on these things. But I just want to let you know the reason that we're talking about this today is because I want to encourage you. One day it will be in America. And one day it will be here. And potentially, if you work in certain offices or certain environments, this might be already at your doorstep. This might be something that you are facing on a daily basis. This is not theory. This is reality for you. And you can lose your job and you can be dismissed from your work. And you can be scorned and mocked by all who work with you. And so just take encouragement and take heart from the example of Daniel. Now, if you're asking the question, why would Canada decide to do this today? They actually tell you why they wanted to do it. They gave a little preamble to their bill. And in the preamble, they give these following reasons for why they decided to enact this into law. They say, because, among other things, it, meaning conversion therapy, is based on and it propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation and gender identity and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality or a cisgender gender identity and expression, i.e. one that conforms to a sex that is assigned at birth, are to be preferred over other sexual orientations or gender identities or gender expressions. Therefore, it is, is it important to discourage and to denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity, dignity and the equality of all Canadians. Some of you were here a few months ago when a group of us made a trip down to Gas City, or I should say up to Gas City. I'm bad with directions. So we went up to Gas City, we visited our parent church, the church that planted us, and at that location, Forrest, who is one of the pastors at that church, said something to the effect of, and many of you might remember it better than I do, said something to the effect of, if the culture gets to determine what is or what isn't harmful, it becomes very dangerous to be a Christian who preaches a gospel that calls all sinners to repentance. Because the culture has decided that in some cases, speech is as harmful as actual acts of violence. And that was all theory three months ago, but today, for many people in Canada who are part of churches, this is reality. The language of harm, the language of danger to another person, is now punishable by imprisonment. And that is something that passed not with dispute, but with a unanimous vote. Not a single dissenting voice in the parliament. And so why do we take some time to dwell on that today? What similarities are there between Daniel 6 and the situation we face? Well, in many, in many ways, Daniel 6 is far more severe. The punishment in Daniel 6 is being fed to lions. Now, in the West, that is still not an acceptable form of punishment. The Western world graduated from that about 2,000 years ago. But instead of being fed to lions, they did what they could. And they decided that a, a punishable sentence, one of five years imprisonment, that's a good enough slap on the wrist to discourage people from being faithful witnesses of the gospel. This is not unique to the history of the church. Some of you might know the history of the church in the Reformation, in which the large Roman Catholic church decided to make it illegal to have any Bible translation that was in English, i.e. a Bible translation that was in the language of the people. And they said, punishable by imprisonment and possibly death is anyone who would translate the Bible into English, also anyone who would print that translation of the Bible into English, also anyone who would preach from a Bible that has been translated into English. Anyone who was found with a copy of such an English Bible went to prison, many of them were burned, and yet, a group of them, called the Lollards, resolved to not only preach out of an English Bible, but they would travel all over the country doing that. And beforehand, they weren't preaching. They were just working their jobs. But under the rule of law that put this into an illegal state, the Christian church responded by saying, we must preach the gospel. And so many faithful men who you will never know the names of died 
walking from town to town with an English translation of the Bible, which they guarded with their lives. And as was customary, those who were executed with their Bibles, the Bibles, if they were recoverable, was often dipped into the blood of the person who was killed carrying it as a witness to the church to take heart. For the person who died carrying this Bible certainly wanted you to hear what it said. And today in the church, we have never faced in our lifetime any kind of persecution even close to that level. Nothing even close. And look at what that kind of persecution has done to the value of the Bible in those days. People would be willing to die for their copy of the Bible. And the lack of persecution, look at what it's done to the church in our day, where we sometimes won't even look at our Bible for weeks or even months. And that's not to scorn you or shame you. That's simply to point out the fact that persecution drives a certain kind of faith out of people that comfort and security does not demand. And I want you to know we are headed for that kind of thing one day. Maybe not now, maybe not in the next five years, but one day in your lifetime, very likely, we will face that as well, as our brothers and sisters in Canada are currently facing. It might not be long before any book that demands conversion for sinners is outlawed. And anyone who's found with such a book might be put into prison. And that is the trajectory that the law is headed. Well, what then do we as Christians have to say about the practice of calling people to convert and to believe? Well, the whole institution of the church is designed for people to convert out of this world and into the kingdom of God. Not just people who struggle with same-sex sexual attraction, but every single person who's ever been guilty of any sin is called to repent of that sin and to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which offers forgiveness and transformation and healing from your brokenness. Now, I want to say that that's not something just true in Daniel. It's not something that's just true in Leviticus. Many of you might have read this past few weeks, uh, Matthew 14. If you're reading the M. Shane plan or a plan like that, Matthew 14 was on the docket. And in Matthew 14, we're told about John the Baptist, who, if you'll remember, was considered by Jesus to be the greatest person born of woman. And John the Baptist was killed for preaching to Herod that Herod had an illicit sexual relationship with Herodias, his brother's wife. And he said, it's not right for you to have her, Herod. And so Herod throws him in prison, and then ultimately, John the Baptist is beheaded because he refuses to recant, and he was beheaded in prison. Now, John the Baptist serves as an example of someone who did what actually all of the prophets in the Old Testament did, which is they were willing to not only preach God's law broadly, but also specifically to the sins of the culture to which it applied. If you don't believe me, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah. They talk about people who whore after false gods. They talk about the high and lofty Jewish people who oppress their poor. And they say, convert and repent of your sin because you are guilty before God. They say, don't steal people and enslave them. That is a punishable crime under the law of God. And all of the prophets do this. None of them is popular. In fact, if you read, many of them are so unpopular, it's like one or two of them in their generation that is able to preach and to bear witness. Jeremiah is so unpopular, no one even goes looking for him. They throw him in a pit for a while, and no one even comes looking. And they just keep him there. There are some who are so unpopular that the kings won't even ask for their counsel because they're so unpopular, the king says, I know that guy, he never says anything good about me. He never says anything good, let's not ask him. They're so unpopular. And the same message that they proclaim, which is obedience to one true God, is the same message that we proclaim, which is the same message that was so unpopular that the very man who came down to manifest the redemption was killed for preaching the message. John the Baptist was killed for preaching the message. Almost all of the prophets of old were killed for preaching the message, including most of the apostles. Eleven out of twelve died actively from the hands of other people because they preached the gospel. Paul died because he preached the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 details Paul's letter to the church. And in that letter, he says, 
Don't worry. I'm imprisoned, but the gospel is still going forth. In fact, it's good that I'm in prison because the gospel goes forth now to the prison guards as well. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. Read the book of Acts. He goes to prison so many times because he, he says the Jewish people are not off limits. I'm walking into the synagogue and I'm saying they are guilty and they need to convert and repent and believe on the Savior who was sent to them. And the Jewish people who have a good relationship with the government say, Paul, you can't preach that stuff in the synagogues. If you show up again, we're going to put you in prison. And so he goes to another town, shows up to their synagogue, does the same thing. Over and over again, eventually, he is imprisoned for two years. And then he testifies to the high Roman authorities and ultimately will be killed in Rome. Paul's imprisonment is another example of the same kind of pattern we see even starting in Daniel chapter 6 and earlier. So then what is so wrong with a bill that says you can't preach about converting from same-sex sexual attraction to heterosexual sexual attraction? What's so wrong with a Christian gospel that is devoid of just that one particular sin? Why can't Christians just let it go? Well, because God has something to say about sex. And so let's look at what God has to say about sex so you can be sure and you can be confident about the biblical witness on this issue. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And as I said earlier, if you have questions at the end of today, if you're still wrestling with these things, we welcome those conversations. Don't run away or flee from these kinds of conversations. Stay. You'll recognize that this is not a manifestation of any kind of bigotry or Christian hate. This is just simply people who are convinced that the Bible is the word of God and we want to be obedient to it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 reads as follows. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And after them, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that could creep on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 details the perfect creation of God, which is manifest in not only the creation of male, but also the creation of female. And God, when creating male and female, looks over his creation and says, it is good. It is good that I have created them male and female. Notice what is in hint, in implicit in that male and female creation. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read verse 24 which reaccounts that same previous creation. And then in verse 24, the reflection is, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before the fall, there was no such problem as adultery. Before the fall, there is no confusion about gender identity. Before the fall, there is no confusion about sexual orientation. All of those things enter in after the fall. And if you wonder how early that kind of sexual perversion starts, just go to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 19. This is one of those genealogies. Genesis 4 verse 19 details the first man to break the pattern that was just established. It says, And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Lamech is the first person to break the pattern that was just established. The pattern was one man and one woman binding together for a lifetime of faithfulness to one another. And the first person to break that pattern is Lamech. And that pattern will then continue to be broken by all of the patriarchs, by David, by his, son Sol by his son Solomon. It will be broken by almost every single Israelite who you read about in texts of Scripture. Almost everyone except the prophets are guilty of this. They break the pattern. 
And in doing so, in breaking the pattern, they are guilty of perverting God's design for marriage and for sex. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Israelites, the kind of same-sex sexual attraction that we might be familiar with today is not as rampant. It's not as prevalent. In fact, there's only a couple of places in the Old Testament you can go to read about it. And most people would say that that has a specific kind of practice in mind, mainly prostitution. And they would be correct in identifying it as such. But we don't just have the Old Testament. We also have the New Testament, which also bears witness about the faithfulness to which we ought to uh, agree on God's design for sex. So if you would, turn with me to one text in particular in the New Testament to look at this. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to be starting in verse 9. First Corinthians 6, verse 9 is Paul's letter to the church, reflecting on a great many of the sins of which they are guilty and encouraging them to hold fast to the gospel which they have been delivered to. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know? And in Paul's case, when he says that, he means you know. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what's at stake. That's why Paul's writing this. That's why the church talks about this. That's why people share the gospel with others. They proclaim a gospel that allows people to enter into the kingdom of God. He says the unrighteous will not inherit this kingdom. And then he's going to go on to define what he just said. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be confused by what the world has to say. Neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's at stake. All of these people Paul has just mentioned will not inherit the kingdom of God. But notice that Paul does not stop with that condemning statement. Notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's saying, your elders, your deacons, your faithful people of the church, and such were some of you. Before Christ, before the gospel, the old man. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul just preached the gospel. He just said, you can't inherit the kingdom if you're guilty of any of these things. Then he turns to the church and he says, remember... You were all once guilty of these things. But Christ Jesus bought you. He redeemed you. He put his spirit within you. And he made you love himself and his kingdom, not the kingdom of the world. First John in chapter 2 says, don't love the world or the things of this world. The world is passing away with its, de- with its evil and its desires. Don't love the world. Love God. And the question then is probably natural. How do we know what is love of the world and what is love of God? What can we trust? Can we trust what we perceive in ourselves is good or not good? Sometimes. Sometimes your morality tells you, hey, murder is wrong. You shouldn't take the life of someone who's also an image bearer of God. You cannot steal things that aren't yours. That's wrong. Some cultures have that down. Some cultures don't think that's wrong. Our culture says, sex, have it wherever, with whoever, whenever, with how many you want. How do we know that that's wrong? If our culture is also right about things like murder, that's wrong. Yes. 
How do we know? What standard are we using to determine this? We'd say we use the standard of Scripture. I'll give you an illustration of why this is uh, a reality. If you've ever studied uh, the planes that America can put out and the kind of technology that's in those things, those things can go really fast. They can go really fast. And they can go so fast that if you're a pilot inside one of these things and you're turning and you're flying, you can get disoriented. Your senses, your internal eardrum could be telling you you're upside down. And to go up, you need to pull up. But the very first thing pilots are taught before they get into these planes is you cannot trust your senses. Your senses will lie to you because the forces on you are so sharp inside that cockpit that your senses will become completely disoriented. You can't trust them. Don't trust your visibility. There's clouds up there. You can't see. Don't trust it. What you have to do as a pilot and what you're trained to do is to trust the instrumentation in front of you. You have to look at the different dials and see how fast you're going. What's your altitude? Which direction are you facing? And if you don't follow those instruments, if you follow your own senses, what you will do is you will crash. You're going to pull up when you think you got to go up and you're going to drive that plane straight into the ground because the instrument said one thing and you went with what you thought was better. And these are not instruments like the kinds of instruments that you have in your car. In your car, when the engine light goes on, you just go, whatever. <laughs> these are well-tuned machines. These machines represent the finest tuning and finest instrumentation of the military that it could produce. All of its scientists, all of its engineers have designed these things. And they check them regularly to make sure they're up to par. And rarely, rarely do these instruments fail. They're always trustworthy. You can rely on them. You can bet your life on it. That's what they would say to pilots. And we have an instrument. And we don't just have one dial that tells us one thing. We don't just have one book. We have 66 books. And each of them gives us a little different picture. What is morality? What is the gospel? What is Jesus? Who are the prophets? What is the law? Who is Moses? Who are the Israelites? Who is this God who created heaven and earth? They tell us different pieces of information but they all bear a consistent witness to the reality of what's going on outside. They might tell us different pieces of information, but they all bear a consistent witness. And they tell us what we can be sure to believe. Or if you like church, what you can bet your life on. You can take this to the bank. You can guarantee that you should not trust yourself. You should trust the witness of these books, the consistent witness that they provide. And if you trust these books, these instruments, you're going to come home safe. You're going to go out flying. You're going to be a wanderer for a little while, very confused as to what's going on. But eventually, if you trust the instruments, you'll land back on the ground. You'll be safe. You'll be home. These are the things that we have to testify to us about reality, the scriptures. That's the standard. So when your morality says something and the scriptures agree with it, great. But when your own intuition tells you something and your instrumentation disagrees, go with the instrument. Submit to what it says because it's more reliable than your senses are because the whole environment that you're in is designed to confuse your senses. Satan is a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour and he's a crafty, crafty tempter. And he will strike at the very heart of what you find dear and try to convince you that God is not good and get you to buy into that what you really believe is good. It's good for you. Eat. Take a bite. Believe yourself. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Scripture says God created the heavens and the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He knows what he's talking about. If he created the world, he created how we ought to live within the world. And he provides us an instruction manual as to how we're to get through the world, to get safely into glory. In this text, Paul identifies a series of sins, some of which we might agree are sins, some of which we might disagree are sins. All of them, Paul says, are sins. And they're in the scriptures. It's an instrument that we have to measure against. And you'll notice when I was reading it, I didn't only emphasize the ones we're talking about right now. I paused on every single sin that is mentioned. 
Because unlike the Canadian government might want you to believe about Christians, they don't just care about your sexuality. God cares about every single part of your being. God calls all sinners to convert from their sin, to convert from their practice of sin, and to convert from their desire for sin, and to be obedient to him, and to follow after him, and to have desires that want him. If you like, if you look at this list with me, first one says, neither the sexually immoral. What Paul has in mind when he says that is people who are not married and who are having sex. They're having sex outside of marriage. It's called sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. It's a general word used to encompass all manner of sexual evil. And he says, those people will not inherit the kingdom. What the gospel says is give up your practice of sexual immorality and give up your desire to practice sexual immorality. Give up both of those things. It says, nor idolaters. They won't inherit the kingdom. What Paul has in mind is anyone who replaces worship of the one true God with worship of any other thing. He doesn't say, don't, just give up your practice of idolatry. He says more than that. Give up your desire to practice idolatry. Give up your desire to want to serve things that are not the one true God. He says, nor adulterers. He doesn't just say, stop practicing adultery. Stop sleeping with someone whose wife is not yours. Stop having sex outside of the bounds of your marriage relationship. That's what adultery has in mind. Don't violate the marriage covenant. And he doesn't just have in mind the practice of adultery. You remember what Jesus said. If you lust after someone, even in your heart, you're guilty of that sin. Don't just give up the practice. Give up the desire for the practice. And then it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's right there in line, so we're going to deal with it right as it appears. And in this translation, you might have a footnote in your Bible. You might not. This translation is actually two different Greek terms that Paul uses, and there's a little bit of debate as to about how to translate them. The first word, which is used in the sentence, is the active participant in the sexual act. The second word could be translated soft or effeminate, and it refers to the passive participant in the sexual act. And so what Paul is saying is both people who lay with men and those who are the ones who are laid with are guilty and will not inherit the kingdom. And just like all the other ones, Paul doesn't just say stop the practice of it. Stop desiring the practice of it. Not just the action itself, but the lust for the action. Similar to how he calls adulterers and idolaters and the sexually immoral. And then he moves on. And he says, nor will thieves inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't, don't just stop stealing. Stop coveting things that aren't yours. With every other sin, we're totally okay with that. He says, nor the greedy. Don't just stop wanting things that aren't yours. Stop looking at things and thinking, it'd be nice if I had that. He says, nor drunkards. He doesn't just say, stop drinking. He says, stop wanting to be drunk. Stop desiring that kind of a state. Nor revilers. I had to look that word up. I did not know what a reviler was. It's someone who speaks slanderous things about other people. If you're a reviler, he says, stop your slander of other people and stop wanting to speak slanderous things about other people. Give up the act and the desire. Nor swindlers. If you want to cheat people out of something, stop doing that. And also, stop wanting to cheat people out of that. Because if you are guilty of those things and you never repent, as he concludes that list, he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if the gospel takes place, if the fruit of the Spirit becomes manifest in these people's lives, Paul can say what he says in verse 11. And all of you in the church were just like those people that I just mentioned. But you were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit who redeems you and works within you. And you were justified because Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And he stands in your place to justify you instead of the sin which you rightly deserve. 
God owed you nothing to rescue you from your sin. You pursued that freely of your own desire. Your disordered nature is something he never had to save you from. But he chooses to, and he justifies you, and then he takes all of that sin which is determined for you, and he puts it on Jesus. And God says, I love these people so much, not because they deserve it, but because I want them, that I will crucify my son. I will pour out the full weight of my wrath for sin against all of humanity, and I will put it on Jesus Christ. And then I will turn around, and I will say, anyone who believes that this counts for them, it counts for them. Anyone who believes in this gospel that I preach can achieve the reality of what I've just stated. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the desire to sin. And unity with the Father. And no government anywhere in the world can take anything off the list that was just named. If the government says you can't say stealing is illegal, Christians can't just go, oh, hang on, let me get a pen, cross that off. Okay, updated. The Bible doesn't need updates. Jesus says of the word of God, heaven and earth can pass away. Heaven and earth. The thing that you're standing on right now, if there was an earthquake, you would feel completely helpless. Earth itself can pass away. Mountains can pass away. The world as we know it can pass away. But the word of God cannot pass away. This is what's at stake. The testimony of the Christian witness. The gospel that we proclaim. The gospel that calls all sinners to repent and convert and believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation. And if you have a conversation with someone and they say, I'll throw you in prison if you keep preaching the gospel, say great. That's what Paul said. That's what John the Baptist said. He didn't just get quiet when he was threatened to be thrown in prison. He said, I'll die for this. That's the only way to get them to be quiet. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to talk about other kinds of sexual immorality, but I don't want to turn there because I want you to read that on your own if you're more interested. What I want to do is I want to go to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 20, and I want to close there. The reason I want to go to Isaiah 50 verse 20 is because it's kind of similar to what we've been talking about in Luke. It's going to be the section we're about to get to in Luke. And it's a warning. It's a warning. And the warning says this. I'm going to read starting in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil. Who put darkness in place of light. Isaiah, sorry, 5 verse 20. Did I say 50? That's my bad. That's good. Otherwise, you guys would have been totally lost. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. As I said, Scripture cannot make mistakes, but I am certainly capable of them. So, yeah. Thank you. Isaiah 5, verse 20. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness in place of light, and who put light in place of darkness who put bitter in place of sweet, and who exchange sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and who are shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Notice there are drunkards, gets right back on the list. And valiant in men in mixing their strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, and who deprive the innocent of their rights. Notice what Isaiah has just stated. He says, don't trust your own instruments. And actually, woe to you for trusting your own sensibilities. Because your own sensibilities are going to tell you to exchange good for evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who write laws that say the idea of the Bible is a myth that has been propagated by Christians for 2,000 years. Woe to those who propagate stereotypes about sexual orientation and sexual design. Woe to those who have anything to say about God if it's not in line with God himself and his word. God has spoken. His words have been recorded. And the church has a very simple job. To preach the words that have been recorded. 
to call all sinners everywhere to repent. To tell every single person who's in violation of God's commandments that there is a means by which we ought to escape. And there's a means by which we can escape. And not to listen to the world when it says, you can save all these sinners, but don't touch these ones. That is a world that hates people. It is not loving to tell people, you're okay, go to hell in your sin. That is not a loving thing. And any church that would compromise on this truth is not worth listening to. And any minister who would compromise on this issue is not worth anything that they proclaim. God's word has been completed. It is a consistent witness throughout all of time. And we ought just to be faithful to it. It's so simple. Just read it and obey it. Now, as I said earlier, all of the things listed in that text require not only the giving up of the practice of sin, but also the giving up of the desire to practice that sin. And if you were thinking with me as I said that, you would have probably said, hold on. That second part's not possible. As Jesus says when he is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, give up your adultery, and if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you're guilty. But the human heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who could know it? And so what ought we to do if we realize we're guilty of any of those things? Well, you need Jesus. Because Jesus didn't have a sinful nature like you have. He was fully God and also authentically a man. And he stood in the place of all sinners. And he died in their place. And then he resurrected again and he said that I now have a spirit that I've purchased by my own blood that I freely offer to anyone who would confess their sins. And if they confess their sins, I'm faithful and just not only to forgive them of their sins, but also to cleanse them, which means to wipe them clean, to put new desires within them, to give them a new heart. No person can discipline themselves into a heart change. But God says, don't walk by your own strength. Walk by my strength. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So take it upon you, all who labor and are heavy laden. Because if you press against the law, you are heavy laden. You will realize how quickly you are broken. And he says, don't worry. I took it. I got it. And I offer it to you. And he says to anyone who would listen, come after me. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. And I will make you righteous before my Father. If you want to testify to me, I will stand before Jesus. I will stand before God the Father. And Jesus Christ himself says he will intercede for us. And he will say, not this one, Lord. This one's mine. This one gets in. And anyone who would stand on his own strength stands on their own strength, which will fall. But he is a firm foundation, a sure bet, something you can count on for your soul and for the souls of anyone who you preach to, anyone who you talk with. This is not just a message for you. This is a message for all people. The gospel says to go forth to all the world and disciple them into the kingdom. And that means giving up sin, giving up any sin, regardless of what the government says, regardless of any government which would preach anything else. The church has its marching orders. And we've been giving our commandment. And we are just called to be faithful. Let's pray. Father God, I want to just thank you for this time together, Lord. How gracious you are to give us a peaceful gathering. To protect us from our own sinfulness. To guard us against all manner of distortion. To give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would reveal to us through your word. Lord, we confess as people who believe your word, we are often in denial of the truths which it proclaims. We are often hypocrites of the first order. Lord, would you forgive us for that? Would you strengthen us and light a fire within us to be faithful witnesses? Though persecution may come, Though scorn may come, though a great many number of deceptions might be present, Lord, 
Would you guard your flock? Lord, we are sheep prone to wander, prone to walk, prone to abandon ship. But we hold fast to this promise that he who began a good work within us will bring it about to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we ask and we pray that that promise would be true and sure and something we can hold fast to. Thank you for your grace, Father. Thank you for your gospel. May we never abandon it. May we never be ashamed of it. May you make us bold men and women to witness to your truth. We ask and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on the cross for sinners. Amen.